are thrilled to have you both on the podcast today. You have so much to share with us and I think so much to offer in terms of what's going on in the country right now. I want to give you a minute as we get started to talk a little bit about your backgrounds individually and the work that you are both doing now. Cindy, I'm going to start with you. Great. Well, I'm Cindy Simpson and I am the Deputy Director of Children and Family Services for Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. So that's just kind of part of my background. I've really been in foster care and uh, working with the homeless population and now more of the immigrant population for, I hate to say it, but it's been, <laughs> it's been like 40 years and uh, looking at therapists in the schools and then doing a lot of community work with the Atlanta Police Department, the Atlanta Police Foundation on some of the zones in Atlanta, rebuilding those communities. In a big picture, that's uh, my background, and I'm a school psychologist by label, but really more of a social worker at heart, and definitely looking at where are the gaps uh, and how do we fill them? We meaning all of us working together to fill gaps that needed to be filled. So. Great. So Chris, let's have you jump in here and give us a little background on you and the work that you did with Cindy when you guys first came together. Yeah, simpler times. Um, yes. I, <laughs> my name is Chris Purdy. I'm the director of Vet Veterans for American Ideals at Human Rights First. Uh, and uh, so we advocate on behalf of refugee and immigrant populations by mobilizing veterans around the country. I I'm the son of an immigrant uh, who fled his family, you know, left Northern Ireland uh, ahead of the civil war that raged that happened there in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so, uh, you know, the refugee immigrant story was something that was very near and dear to my heart. And uh, but I, you know, my family had always imbued in me this idea of public service, which is why I joined the military. And then I became a teacher. And then I uh, worked for uh, Atlanta Public Schools with uh, with Cindy. Uh, where we really did invest a lot of resources in the community. My job at that time was to kind of help struggling schools think about services they could directly inject into their uh, their communities, both from the student services, the mental health, the, the 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 wraparound support services, and try to bring that that holistic. Uh, type of support to communities that hadn't really gotten them. So working with Cindy at, and Chris 180 at the time um, was a great opportunity. Um, and then it's really great to see that we've kind of both moved on <laughs> and continued our service with communities in need and working with immigrant and, and refugee communities. It's just, it's just funny how, you know, that, that, how that thread continues. You know, it's so important for us to have you on today. There's a lot of opportunity now for people to build their own personal brands and have big opinions on what is going on in the world. And particularly from a political standpoint, people that are you know, great communicators have those gifts and talents. What I'm always struck by is how much we don't hear from the people who are really out there every single day doing the work and who don't have a platform to actually give the American public real information about what is going on around the issues that we're struggling so much with as a country and how that is truly impacting not only children, 
but their parents and their caregivers, the teachers that are trying to deal with these issues, mm -hmm. the social workers, the counselors, the folks that are in the schools every single day in local communities, really trying to have direct impact in very, very difficult situations. You know, people always say to me, I believe this or I believe that. And I always want to say, you know, until you've been in a school, until you've, you know, hung out in those classrooms and gotten to know families and watched what's really, really happening inside these schools with the populations that you want to, you know, that, that people are making assumptions about, that it's, it's hard for us to have an intelligent conversation <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's conjecture. And you two have been on the ground with refugee populations, with the issues that we're dealing with with immigration, with what's going on with trauma and the emotional needs and the needs of children to actually understand their identity, have become the high functioning adults that we need them as a country to become for the countries to sustain when they are experiencing the things that they are experiencing at such a young age. So we got a lot to talk about today. We won't be able to cover it all. Well, I'll just jump in first, Chris, if that's okay. And you just jump in after yeah, me. Okay. So, and, and look, really looking back at pre-COVID, Stacey, I think there, you know, we had a different political party in, in charge at that time. So that view of immigration, children crossing the border on their own, and how they were treated is much different than how they are today. Although there are a lot, still large gaps and a lot of needs. You know, there's language barriers, there's abuse that they've taken, the trauma that they've gone through trying to get to the United States to a lot of them reunite with family members that are already here, that already have their green cards and getting to safety. So depending on what country you're coming from, it's, it's different needs for different populations and different reasons for leaving. The Afghan population has definitely stretching us. Things that we don't remember that we haven't done in years. You know, when was the last time that we dealt with immigrant refugee population from a war, from an actual battle that the United States was involved in? So we can't recall what we did in the past. So we're kind of learning as we go, and we've learned a lot in the last couple months for the Afghan immigrant population. And there's a lot of needs that we need to address. Here's the thing. What's interesting to me is when people yeah. want to talk about immigration, they want to talk about it in broad strokes, you know? Yeah. It's, it's immigration not. or not. It's people crossing the border. You know, it's a wall. It's yeah. all these sort of general terms. And it's so much more complex than that, as most of right. these issues are. And by and large, regardless who's crossing the border, there are many children that are coming across the border. And that's a, a special population yes. that we have to deal with as human beings in a different way. They're being brought into this world and showing up in our shores. And that, that's something that other people are making those decisions for them. So 
what have you learned? Let's start with the Afghan population and, and tell me what you have learned that's different than maybe other populations that we're dealing with. Yeah, so some of the other immigrant populations from Central America, and depending on what country, there's differences there. And that's what we've learned. But then you take the Afghan population, they are suffering from a war. They're suffering from seeing violence and how traumatic that is for a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old. And they're scared. The other thing, there's a lot of grief and loss going on because their family members are still back in Afghanistan, who they're talking to. And their family members are hungry and cold. And they feel, then they feel guilty that they're safer here. They're being fed. They're being kept warm. And they're very concerned about their future. They don't understand really what's next. So there's a lot of deep trauma going on. And we weren't culturally ready. We don't have enough interpreters to even do the amount of therapy we need to do. And this is also a population that, especially in their teenage years, that they really, they need one-on-one -on -one therapy, but they also need a lot more group therapy where there's group discussion, where they can talk to others that are going through what they're going through. And they're anxious and the guilt that they feel uh, is enormous. So it's not just grief and loss, it's grief, loss, and guilt all put together in one. They're also concerned about their friends that are still, their girlfriends or their boyfriends that are still um, in Afghanistan. That's another issue that they're dealing with. And they wanna be able to talk to them. We can't just have a blanket rule and a blanket kind of way that we address these things. Each population is a little different and that we've had to learn and we have to be ready to adjust. I think the other thing that we have to do more of, which we're beginning to, is where's the youth voice? You know, we have to allow them to tell us what they need and how they would like to be treated and how we need to run some of our cottages or group homes or uh, foster care homes that may be a little bit different. And so we have to make those adjustments. And we're just beginning to kind of learn that and beginning to make the adjustments that need to be made. Chris, you want to weigh in on this? And particularly, I mean, I think the Afghan population is one segment of the population, and it, it just begs the question of what you just said, Cindy, that we have to begin to understand that this is not a one size fits all. Nope. This is not an either or. This is something much deeper than that, where human life and human capacity is really on the line as young children develop. Chris, how would you respond to that and what can you add? Yeah, so part of my job was dealing with the evacuation and the crisis that happened at the airport uh, in Kabul. And if you recall, there was a horrific scene where at when the first plane, one of the first planes that were flying, that was flying out of Hamakar International Airport, August 15th or 16th, people were, were attaching themselves to the plane. 
And uh, there was uh, a real tragic situation where the plane took off and one uh, young man was still on the plane and he fell off and was 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 tragically killed. And I believe that was a it was a young man, 17 or 18. He was born in a country that the United States had liberated from the Taliban, grew up with the promises that the United States government had given to him and his generation. And he was so terrified of life of the, under the Taliban and the return of the horrors of the 90s and the 80s that he was willing to, to attach himself to a plane in the hopes that he would survive in, in the United States. And what that tells me is that we have a special moral obligation to the children of Afghanistan to, to, to show them that we are going to honor our promises, that we are going to take care of them, that these people, they've, they look to us. We, again, we spent 20 years promising them a better life, a better future, that we as a country are going to be there for them. And we have to be there. We have to honor that promise. So yes, we have a legal obligation under the refugee uh, convention. We have legal obligation under the various laws that, uh, that get their parents who might qualify for various different avenues in the United States. But the key thing that I think, you know, in my work that I try to tell people is laws are great and, they're, and, they, and, they, and they help us keep us on the same path, but we have a moral obligation among all things to ensure that um, that, that these children are taken care of. And it's incredibly powerful to those like me who, you know, served in the military. I served in Iraq, not in Afghanistan, but still, you know, interacted with a population and gave them America's promise that we do our best. And currently, and even before COVID, we weren't doing our best. And mm-hmm. It's going to be a long struggle for us to uh, ensure that we make equity of opportunity and equity of services uh, available to these children. I mean, you look at where Afghans are going, where mi- where migrant children in general are going. They're often segregated into into different communities, you know, by design or by happenstance. They're segregated, and they're not put in the most wealthiest areas, which means that they don't have access to the best, the most resources to provide uh, the services that they need. Cindy and I are here in Atlanta, and there are whole communities built around refugees. Uh, on the the suburbs of of Atlanta, and these are these are communities that are vibrant and have great businesses and wonderful people, but the money's not there to provide the trauma informed care. The money's not there to provide the social workers and psychologists. If we do not take care of these students, we run the risk of breaking our promise again. We broke our promise when we left Afghanistan that we did, and that's a whole other conversation that I'm happy to talk about. <laughs> but we have this opportunity now to make good. On, on the promises that we we gave to them while we were there. And we can say, all right, we are going to do the best we can, we can as a country to provide services for you. So we need to we need to pay for those services. You know, this is, we could go for five hours on this because I think there's so much to discuss here. A couple of things really hit home that again, part of what defining us is about is to start to provide deeper information that people don't normally get and a perspective that is not A or B, but is somewhere in the nuances and the details of what's really going on in between and how we define words in this country and how we define issues in this country. I mean, when we think about, I would hasten to say that if I say the word equity on this podcast, What most people think about is a racial issue that is black versus white to some degree, 
and is really about giving resources or equalizing the playing field for a particular population, we don't even necessarily think about equity in terms of how you just used the word, Chris, and how it we do in broad terms. We understand what it is, but how many people that concept impacts and also all different types of populations, all different types of kids across the board, mm -hmm. and also the role of military and what the veterans are doing, what military does in a country to deliver on America's promise that goes far beyond protecting America in a militaristic sense. And I think we want to broaden these definitions. And I think we want to talk about the things that are going on out there and what the needs are in a way that is different from, you know, what pops into our brains when we hear these terms. Yeah. So, I mean, the military does things beyond just what, um, it's traditionally thought of as a military. We, we're not out there just shooting things and blowing things up. I had a lot of my friends who served in Afghanistan were um, like me. They were in a what's called a combat arms profession, which meant that you 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 were trained to do those things. But what they were actually doing is they were building roads and they were building schools and they were building wells and all these different things that for 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 life to exist. And and I keep coming back to this: an entire generation of Afghans saw America doing this and they saw us going into their communities and trying to make it better. And, and that is the force of our, of, 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 of our, our government, our military was trying to do in Afghanistan. And uh, now that we're gone, we have to figure out a way to make sure that those, those, those kids uh, who have now grown up and those, you know, the, the next generation of, uh, of young, young uh, Afghans who, are, who have been left behind and who have made their way over, they still see that, that idea of America as a helper, as a force for good, uh, mm -hmm. beyond just, um, you know, the, the action and the kinetic operations that, you know, a lot of people think of when they think of the military. I just want to add something here. I mean, what I look at is no matter what, these are children. And as the human race, then we owe it to the children to help them move forward. So we can use terms like equity and those kinds of things. But bottom line, there are gaps that we need to fill, whether the kids came from the border or whether they came from Afghanistan. Bottom line, they are children and it's our responsibility as people to help them move forward. The other thing is I, I really get concerned at times that we make immigration and the whole immigrant movement, we make it so political. And so we're wasting time and we're wasting our knowledge and skills and we're not listening to the youth themselves on what they need because we're making it political. So Chris talked about Georgia yeah, Georgia has some work to do. But then you look at other states that I get extremely concerned about and other governors saying, we're not going to allow any immigrant programs in our state. That's scary. It's a political issue, not a human issue. Yeah, I think 
you know, the migrant community, whether it's from Afghanistan or Central America or, uh, or Africa, they face a lot of the same issues that our poorest communities face, yeah. right? They're segregated, like I mentioned earlier. They're not funded uh, appropriately. And as a result, they can't get to the, the services that they need. The thing that I think also makes them different, in addition to what Cindy uh, said, is that there is not a stability of circumstance. So you get a lot of people, and these Afghans are in that bucket right now. A lot of people don't understand that these Afghans are coming under a temporary immigration measure called humanitarian parole. They do not have a pathway to legal permanent residency if they do not pass an asylum interview. So these, these, these kids are coming here, and they might have two years before they have to be removed somewhere else. I'm listening to you, and I'm going to sort of, again, go back to Joe Public, the average person that is dealing with a lot of their own issues right now. And it just feels so big. It feels like so much. And I think that there are a lot of people in the listening audience and people in America that say, I hear you, and I want to be compassionate, and I want to be sympathetic, empathetic, whatever word you choose, those are different. I want to care, but how do we ever wrap our head around this? And is it really America's job? It's definitely America's job. I mean, we have a 250 year history of ensuring that migrants at some level are taken care of. You know, we could look back at the the xenophobic eras of the late 1800s and the 1930s, and where did that get us, right? It, It got us into really bad spots. So what we know is throughout American history, when America takes care of its migrants, we become a more prosperous country. And that is, is borne out in, uh, in here in Georgia. I mean, you get in a Lyft or an Uber, and I guarantee you, you're, you're, you're going to be dealing with special immigrant visa applicant from Af- Afghanistan. I mean, it happens to me all the time. These, these are people who start their own businesses. They, they are productive members of society. And if, if it's not in our own moral interest, it is in our own self-economic interest to ensure that we, we take care of these people. Because if we don't take care of them, where are they going to go? We legally cannot remove them back to Afghanistan. There are laws preventing us from do that, which means that then they have to go to another country and then become another country's burden. And they potentially, if that country isn't willing to take care of them, that could lead to instability. And then we have to deal with, with that country through foreign aid. I mean, there is, there is a, a whole downstream effect if we don't take care of them, which in and of itself is going to provide an economic benefit. If we do not take care of them now, we have to deal with these, this population eventually. They're not a burden. It's, it's our responsibility you know, on several levels, but they're not a burden. And I totally agree with Chris, economically, it's going to move us forward. So when we talk about more detail around the Afghan children, they're concerned about their future. They're concerned about their education. That's almost number one on their list. What about my education? I want to have an idea what my future holds, what's possible for me. So that's an interesting thing that when you listen to them and listen to that youth voice, they're, they're looking towards their future. They're concerned about it and they're scared, but they're concerned about it and want to know what's possible for them. And it's not a burden. We're going to move forward. We're going to help them. And they're eventually going to help us. I mean, because economically, they're going to help us. And just to, I want to add on to that. We, we look at like throughout history, right. how, how migrants have helped us. I mean, exactly. Steve Jobs it was a Syrian migrant. 
Elon Musk is from South Africa. You know, the the founder of Chobani. You can look at America's business landscape right now and see how much our economy is funded by immigrants. My own father, right, came from Northern Ireland, served in the U.S. military, became a teacher for 35 years and on just the micro the, the, the micro level. So 100 percent, they're not a burden. And if anything, they're a, they're a, a force multiplier for our economy. It almost makes the political piece of this to some degree absurd. And what I mean by that, not the whole political argument, certainly, but when you think about what you hear on the nightly news or whatever station, you know, cable system you're watching or whatever you're reading in social media, all the pithy, you know, five second sound bites and emotionally charged messages that are coming at our population around these complex issues, it's almost like totally missing the point. We're leaving out huge parts of the population when we talk about these issues. We're making sweeping assumptions, sweeping accusations about what's going on in this country around general immigration laws. And many people are so busy, that's the only information that they're getting. And so what I want to say and have you guys have a chance to follow up on is, you know, it seems to me as my dear friend and executive producer of um, Defining Us with us, Dr. Maria Karstarfin, who's formerly with mm-hmm. Atlanta Public Schools, likes to say, you know, the American public is responsible for the information they receive and that they read and what's informing their opinions. If I really want to dig into this issue and I want to just know a little bit more, particularly with the Afghan population and with some of the points that you just made, Chris, about historically what we've done and how migrant workers, when we take care of them, they actually you know, have been incredibly beneficial for the country. Where do I go for that? What would you recommend? You know, each community has dozens of refugee resettlement agencies that they could reach out to here in Atlanta. There's New American Pathways, for, uh, for example. Uh, Church World Service are all local uh, agencies. One of the biggest drivers of refugee resettlement are churches and faith groups and small community centers. So I would encourage people to reach out to their 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 faith organizations and be they'd be surprised uh, at, at at what they're doing. One member of our network is based out of uh, Warrenton, Virginia, which is you know deep red rural Virginia, and he convinced his church to sponsor eight Afghan refugees over the past uh, you know, year and a half or so. And so I think if people are looking for that information, uh, they'll be surprised where they, where they could find it. I don't know, Cindy, if you have anything to add. Yeah, I, what do we always hear on the news? We, we don't get this information, okay? Because we, I don't know whether there's an assumption that people don't really want to know that information. It's not number one. So in some ways, I think it would be very interesting to look at groups of people working with the immigrant population, coming together, sharing information, and getting some of that information recorded or televised, that it's that that's what's on the news. Here's some history. Let's take a look at that. You know, if I look at CNN or whatever other organization, it might be very interesting that people, they don't even know to ask the question anyway. So we have to kind of feed it to them, you know, in in easy spoonfuls. And from a policy perspective, like we have an opportunity to create systems to 
to encourage that exchange of ideas or that, that exchange of cultures and, and information. I'm, I'm going to show my youthfulness, I hope, a little bit. When I was in middle school, the Bosnian crisis was happening. And there was there were 20,000 Bosnians that were uh, similar to what we did in Afghanistan, moved from the, the region to Fort Dix and then distributed from New Jersey, then distributed throughout the United States. And one of those young students that came from Bosnia ended up at my lunch table one day when I was in, was in, in eighth grade. And I had no idea that A, Bosnia was a place that existed, B, that there was a refugee program, or C, that we had an obligation or, an oppor- or even the opportunity to help these people. And so from, from that one interaction, you know, that student was able to, just his very presence, was able to touch hundreds of students. And then, then they potentially had gone out and throughout their lives and thinking, oh, yeah, I remember – you know, so-and-so, you know, we, we, we did this when I was middle school, we could do it again, we can, we can help people. So from a policy perspective, we have a real opportunity to make change by ensuring that these, these uh, students, as they're being distributed through the United States, are, are, are not segregated, they're not clumped together in communities, or at least have the opportunity to be in different, uh, different locations and, and communities that they might mm-hmm. not normally have integrated with. I think that's incredibly important, this idea that they're segregated, that they're clumped together in communities that were sort of pigeonholed, you know, putting them in certain areas. I mean, these are huge issues that, again, each one of these particular issues could be a podcast. But I want to segue now into something that you guys see every day, because most of these children at their core, what they're really suffering from is trauma. You know, these are kids that are suffering from trauma and are doing everything that they possibly can within their power to navigate their own lives with that background. But Cindy, to your point, we use trauma in this kind of, it's the word of the week to a large degree in education and in psychology. We hear a lot about trauma. It means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think we've learned a lot about trauma and what the impact of trauma is over the past several years. And now with COVID coming into play, what we're seeing in schools and what we're seeing from children that have been impacted with trauma, it goes very broad. So why don't we begin with you giving us a working definition of trauma and trauma-informed care or trauma-informed services. Let's start there. Okay. So when you think of the word trauma, and, and trauma is something that people can recover from. It's, it's recoverable. So, but you think of an event, you know, and one event that happens to me might be traumatic it happens to you, but it's not traumatic. So it's an event that causes, you know, grief and loss and disturbance that you, you don't function at your high level. But again, those are different things to recover from. It's like, you know, I, an example to me is working with parents in different areas of Atlanta and getting them to understand they think their child's misbehaving and acting out. Well, let's really find out, is that really what's going on? Because this happened all of a sudden. What event happened to that child? What did they see? What did they hear? What physically happened to them 
which was traumatic to them, and now they're acting out. So it's teaching parents about that. It's teaching teachers about what trauma-informed care, what are the signs of trauma? And for you know individuals, it's different, but there are definitely kind of general signs of trauma that I can look at and say, okay, something traumatic has happened, and how do we help this child or this family or this teacher? Teachers are having their own trauma with as well, and so are parents. So number one, understanding what trauma is, understanding what the reactions are to trauma, a traumatic event, and how to help people move forward. Chris, anything you want to add to that? No, I think that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, we we, we talk about trauma in, in the migrant context right now, but it, it is something that school districts, whether urban, suburban, exurban, or all have to deal with on their, on their own level. And it just gets back to that. I keep coming back to funding. Right. We need the funding to pay for the people to help the kids with the trauma. Yeah. And, and right now, the, the communities that that that, that need the, the, the trauma-informed care don't have the resources to provide those services. So could we not make an argument that many people in this country, a majority of people in this country, after the with what's going on with COVID okay. and what's going on in schools as children re-enter, are dealing with aspects of trauma that we've never seen before? And one of the things that was really has been really eye-opening for me as we deal with school systems across the country. And I have asked recently top administrators in large school systems and in rural school systems. I was talking to a school system that was nine schools in a rural Midwestern county. I've also talked with New York City Department of Ed, which is our biggest client that we work with on a daily basis. And I've said to them, what's the biggest issue coming back out of COVID? And many of them have told me violence, mm -hmm. violence in the kids, violence in, you know, a lot of aggression, you know, more weapons that they're discovering in schools. Kids are coming back out of COVID and having been home in very difficult situations and in communities that don't have these services and don't have that care. And a 10 year old that's left to his or her own devices for a year and a half in those situations and doesn't have a school to go to, doesn't have another environment to go to, to get out of the chaos. It really has significant impact. And I take that a step further and back to Chris, what you were saying, here's what all these communities can do for us. Here's, you know, even if we don't want to talk about the moral obligation, which all of us on this podcast believe we have, it's bad for America a, we're losing something. But I think the other end of the spectrum is, is that when you are left in traumatic situations and you don't have any way to really figure out how to work your way out of it, at the other end of the spectrum, violence is not an uncommon outcome. Am I wrong about that? Could you, each of you address that? Yeah, I think that this, I think COVID just made it more obvious, more, more evident, but I think our, our student population in general was dealing with this even before COVID. I've heard it called the Columbine generation, right? We've, we've had a, we have a generation of students that have had to deal with gun violence in a way that we've never experienced in American history before. You know, my daughter has to do active shooter drills, you know, put, put a, put a, a you, you know, everything against the door, block the door, everyone can go quiet. Like, what does that do to a first grader or a second grader? 
COVID is, is, is unique and special, but I, what, what I'm concerned about when we think about just COVID is that we think, all right, well, this is something we have to tackle. And once we get over COVID, we can move away from it. But if we move away from this idea that we need to provide adequate services into schools for trauma-informed care, we're missing a whole lot of, of needs that are, that are going to arise. Uh, I think you know part of the, the political problem that we have in this country is that people can't talk to each other. They can't see where, where, where each other's you know, perspectives are and their own needs. And a lot of that comes from a lack of you know, socializing and, and social education growing up. You know, if, if you look at the historic disinvestment in schools where they've cut these social services over the past 20 years, well, the result of that is a, is a population of Americans that see themselves as fundamentally different from someone who has a different political view and they can't talk to the other person. So I, I think that was a, a very broad example of where I'm going here with this. But what I'm trying to say is that the more services we put in schools, the better this is going to be for our society as a whole, even after COVID. Yeah. And I, and I agree with what you're saying, Chris, about the violence, you know, the Columbine generation or however you want to describe it. That was already happening. The COVID time, you know, the social isolation, you know, I heard over and over our youth, their children got behind educationally. Our children got behind with social interaction and the social emotional learning to me really should be the number one thing we're working on. We'll catch up educationally, but social emotional is important because I think Stacey, you're exactly right. We've gotten even more violent. Uh, it's that being left alone. And, and all of us went through grief and loss, whether it's friends, whether it's family members, whether it's just uh, social events we couldn't participate anymore. Those high school seniors that didn't get to walk across the stage, they lost something. So it's, it's looking at all those things and how do we address it. And it really is looking at you know, when I look at communities in Atlanta, each community is a little different. It's kind of like we talk about the immigrant population from which country or they're, they're all a little different. You have to under, begin to understand them. And it's the same thing when I look at communities in Atlanta and schools in Atlanta, we have to come together as a community and help community members become members of the community and you know, it's kind of going back to that old way of thinking that happens in some areas that here's a grandmother. She's a grandmother to the community, not just as a biological grandparent. And we have to get back to that point of view and back to that moving forward. I want to follow up here because you guys are in the classroom. And what I always want to or have been throughout your careers, what I always want to say is the nuances of what actually goes on inside a classroom. We just finished a documentary called Defining Us. It's part of the overall project. And one of my favorite quotes from that um, was from a, a now administrator, but started out as a teacher in New York. And she says, you know, there's no more sacred space than between a teacher and a child in a classroom. And because you're at a really baseline human level, one-on-one, -on -one, up close and personal. And I want people to start to get in their head what happens in a classroom where you can't talk about these issues. You've got kids that are dealing with all the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, whether they are from 
an immigrant, different types of immigrant mm -hmm. populations with broad differences in things that are impacting them. Children that are coming out of poverty, children that are suffering from food insecurity, and they're mixing. Mm -hmm. They're mixing with children that have very different needs and just general social and emotional needs. What actually goes down in a classroom when we're shutting down those kinds of conversations, when we're not considering cultural difference, when we are really just focused on math mm -hmm. and asking people to step up and do their homework and get their, what, 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 what happens in that world? Well, we're re-traumatizing these students. Right. I mean, like it's, you know, it's not like food, if you don't talk about food insecurity in communities of colors, like that does not exist. You know, uh, if, it's not like if you don't talk about police brutality uh, in certain communities that that does not still exist. So by ignoring it and by saying we can't talk about it or we, uh, you know, you, you, I only want you to focus on, re you know, the reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, we're creating drones of students that are re that are continually re-traumatized every day they go into school because they see something at home. They're not allowed to talk about it at school. And they're only the, the only thing that they're told to care about are these narrow things in academics. And then they go out into the world and they don't know how to deal with their emotions. That has disastrous consequences. Go ahead, Cindy, because that yeah. I, what's the impact? I mean, it's catastrophic. Yeah. Am, yeah. I, am I making that up or, or have you actually seen that in action? We've seen that in action and it becomes violent. So you're already teaching people, here's the history or here's this, but we're not going to talk about it. So they're, they're left to their own devices, their own assumptions that are made, or their own things that they see in the community or hear on the news or see in a movie. I think that is and has encouraged our violence to increase. And part of it is when I look at teachers, I'm not sure that they're trained in how to facilitate a group discussion. And I think that can be part of the problem. They're taught to teach math or writing or arithmetic, but are they really taught to sit down and facilitate, here's the history, what do you think about this history? What can we do different or what should we do different in the future? So those kinds of things to get our children thinking and talking and hearing and listening to each other I'm not sure teachers are taught that. It's kind of along with trauma-informed care. They go together. Yeah, well, the school needs to invest in training. That's the first thing. No one should go into a situation and, and just be handed a sheet of paper or, or a spiral notebook with instructions and be expected to, to do this type of work. The second thing I would say, you know, so let's say that's baseline, that the schools are, are providing that re those resources and training. The second thing I would say is that this actually came up when I was a when I was a teacher in Washington D.C. We rolled out a social emotional learning curriculum at this middle school that I was at, and we brought in a, a, a trainer, and we had some teachers that were very resistant, and they said exactly the same things. I don't know what I'm doing. This isn't the right thing for our students. We don't want to do this. And the trainer just asked them. They said, "All right, well, what are you doing right now to deal with this work?" And they listed off whatever ba very basic. And the trainer said, well, how's that working out for you? And the silence was just deafening in the classroom because, because the, the, the teachers knew that it wasn't working, what they were doing wasn't working and they needed tools and they needed training and they needed help. And so here was this opportunity for us to change, but because it was something new and different, they didn't understand, they were very resistant to it. 
but once we confronted them with the fact that like whatever it was that they were doing wasn't working you know then that opened up a little door for them to start taking a little bit of training and a little bit of you know, uh, help in. Teachers are very territorial. I get it. You know, you like, you like being your island in your classroom and no one can come in and tell you what to do because you know your kids better than anyone else. But the reality is, is that, you know, this is very complicated stuff and we're asking teachers to do a lot. And I get that. That is hard. But if we don't do it, would nothing, what, who, Cindy? I mean, yeah, we're going to, I mean, if we don't do it, you're going to see the violence continue to increase. And it, that's with all over communities. It's not just any one community or any one population. And if and it is a lot for teachers and it's a it's a lot to learn how to facilitate a group. You know, how do you facilitate 20 second graders? There are definitely ways to do that where they can the second graders get a chance to talk. If that's not a skill a teacher can be trained to do, then we have to bring in other resources. We have to have other people come in and help the teacher facilitate that. Because if we don't, we're going to see the violence continue to increase. And I want to take it from start with micro and move to macro, because aren't we also saying to some degree that to a large degree, education is local, schools are local, and just informing yourself and being aware of the depth of these issues and what your local school is dealing with and how you can be supportive and how you can promote active involvement in things like social and emotional learning, trauma-informed care, giving yourself enough of an education that you're really looking at what's going on in your community, that's helpful. Am I... right? That's a, it's a great place to start. Having the conversation is a great place to start. Yeah, I would say it's very helpful. I would caution the people to make sure they're going to the right places for information and not just reading what they find on Facebook. I think we've seen over the past few months, significant outrage machines that have kind of generated on Facebook directed at boards of education. And, and, and that can be very harmful, but I mean, in general, yeah, you want to do as much research as you, as you can on this. And then from a macro level, to your point, Chris, policy, what's going on with your local politicians, what's going on in your local community and the discussion around these issues. It's critical that the citizenry is adequately informed, not just what you're seeing on Facebook or a five-second soundbite or what you're watching on any of the news outlets. Can you speak to that? Yeah, your uh, board of education, your city council, mayor, your state reps and state senators, those are the critical people who are going to be determining your, your, your child's education. Everyone likes to think about Washington, D.C. is this very sexy thing, place where all this stuff gets, gets done. It really doesn't. You know, we're lucky if we get maybe three or four critical pieces of legislation a year, and I spend my entire job making sure that those things get passed. But you have the most opportunity, have the most impact at your local level. And we're seeing this, again, playing out in a very unhelpful way in states around the country. You know, certain states uh, moving to abolish their state board of education because they don't like the equity of education. Here in Atlanta, Gwinnett County School Board being, you know, there was a consideration, that thankfully it, it didn't pass, but a consideration of, you know, transitioning that to a, to a, a less equitable structure. So, you know, it's making sure that we elect the people that are the most 
I guess, observant of our of our values and, and, and are aware of the things that need to be done to the state level. And then the federal level, the federal level is where the money comes from. You know, as long as you make sure that there's federal funding for education, I think that that is, that's all they're going to be able to do in the near future. That's my jaded opinion on Washington. <laughs> do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, I, well, when I look at, you know, education, I just think we have to really use that in very broad terms. And just to give you an example, because I, when I look at these communities and we're talking about people volunteering or wanting to get involved, you know, I look at a community in Augusta who's, who's had some deep issues. And here are these community churches. They weren't all Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist. They were a mixture of churches and community members that really have stepped it up together to change what goes on in that community. So they've almost begun to have more influence than the council folks or the politicians. But that's what communities together, we have to step up and we have to make sure our children, no matter where they come from or where they live, that we are giving them the things they need and that we're listening to them. There's not really another positive alternative. You know, so many people say, well, if we just went back to um, how it used to be, if we just really focused on academics and this is a parent's job, um, if we just didn't have these conversations in schools, if schools weren't taking on this kind of responsibility, if we focus on the, you know, quality of a person's character, I mean, there's all these sort of broad statements that I believe allow us to ignore the issue. It allows us to sort of sentimentalize, if that's even a word, to become sentimental and to conjure up some memory in our childhood that says that's the answer. And it's not even real. And the reason I believe that, and I want you two to comment on it is because I'm in the schools a lot, but I haven't spent my life every day in a classroom. I mean, Cindy, you said you've been in this for 40 years. There is no nostalgic response to this, right? We're different. Mm -hmm. We are a different country. And if we want positive outcomes for the future generation, we have to do things differently. And I'd like for you both to because I think most thinking people, if they can take their head there, it becomes a different issue for them. And this thing that you said, Chris, about, you know, this sort of fear of change. I mean, we're changing. There's, this, is, this isn't something we can stop, right? And nor would we want to. But even if you think you want to, it, it's not really an option anymore. Yeah, I mean... A student spends a third of their life in a classroom up until, you know, whatever, right? Eight hours in the, in the day, eight hours awake at home, eight hours sleeping, whatever that, however that works out to be. It doesn't make any sense to, to use that one third of the time when they're socializing with the most amount of people. They're not socializing with that many people at home. So, yeah, I mean, I guess theoretically a parent could sit there and, and kind of talk to them and, and say like, oh, yes, this is you know, these are the issues that we as a country and as we as a community face, but then we're, we're making, we have to assume that those parents have no biases, which is not true. 
right? Everybody has their own biases. So a school provides an opportunity for us to, to use one third of this child's life to educate, to, to kind of incubate these ideas in, a, in, a, in an environment where they can actively play out and they can, they can actively see the effects of, of, of these ideas and this education in their socialization at school. So it's just really important to do it in school. And if we don't do it, like I said earlier, it's, it's not like the food desert in your community is going away, right? If you don't have a Kroger in your community, you still don't have a Kroger in your community when you go home. And ignoring that at school is just not helpful. I don't think we have a choice. And I agree with Chris, the amount of time our children spend in school it's like, that's where we're going to have to do it. And that's the broad definition of education. It's not just curriculum. It's, you know, all kinds of learning that need to be guided. And it's going to have to happen at school. I think the other supplemental things are the community organizations that can supplement that for after school work and during down school. So during holidays and summer, you know, they could supplement that. So can churches. But I don't think we have any other option but to have the schools do this and we have to fund it. I think if we don't do it, as we've pointed out, that violence started to increase before COVID is increasing more during COVID and post-COVID. It's going to continue to increase until we address these things. And, and there's a direct the correlation. The mm-hmm. dots connect. Exactly, they connect. And so that's why we don't have a choice but to move that forward. And you can't go back. You know, we can learn from history, but you can't go back and change it. So we have to learn and move forward. Where can we find you guys? If I want to know more, if I want to get in touch, you both are working with great organizations. So give us a little bit of information there. We'll certainly put it in the notes um, on our pages. We'll link to it. Tell us a little bit about how we can find you and the work we're doing. So I can be reached via email. It's csimpson at lirs.org. Yeah, and my email is purdyc at humanrightsfirst.org. Org. Um, and uh, our websites are humanrightsfirst.org and bfai.org. And then we also lead a coalition of about 125 organizations called Evacuate Our Allies, which focuses very specifically on um, the Afghan situation. And so you can find us at evacuateourallies.com. And that's a great way, Chris, if you're a veteran too, to participate and get mm-hmm. involved. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, we, we, so my job specifically is to, is to encourage veterans to do this work. You know, we believe that veterans signed up uh, to serve this country as a, a out of a sense of service and duty. And uh, and certainly when I took off my uniform, and I know when lots of vets take off theirs, they they want to continue that work. They want to continue feeling like they're part of a, a community. And uh, what better way than to advocate for human rights um, as a veteran? So, if you go to the LIRS website, and it's www.lirs.org. There is a lot of information and a lot of data on that, on the immigration subject, advocating for change. So I would definitely go to that website to get some of that information around immigration service and what's going on and what are some of the political stances that are out there that people might want to get involved in. We can connect schools with training and connect communities to get involved in how that works. Great. 
Thank you so much. I think this was really, really powerful. I think these are issues and details and really allow us to get into some of the complexity of the true work mm-hmm. that actually needs to be done and that is being done with populations that we categorize under these broad sweeping terms and which is uh, dangerous at worst, incomplete at the very least way to begin to talk about individual children and individual lives. Thank you so much, both of you for being here and hopefully people will be reaching out. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. 